Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, a Chicago writer discussed the legacy of the Great Migration, we learned about the nation's largest black film festival, and Ohm played a scorching live set on the air. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much, much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 28, 2017. Radio Free spoke to writer and producer Tina Sachs about the new film A Thousand Midnights, a chronicle of the Great Migration. The AFI award-winning film is currently part of the PBS online showcase. Sachs spoke about her own family's experience moving from Mississippi to Chicago during the last century. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPNLP Chicago. We're back with uh, film uh, uh, Tina Sachs. <laughs> producer, I, I producer, to, I was about to preempt the introduction here. I apologize. Uh, but Tina Sachs, we're going to talk about a film. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you've got uh, a new film about the Great Migration. Tina, you've been in Chicago a long time. What, what drove you to do a film about the Great Migration in the first place? Sure. So I'm a born and raised Chicago, and this is really my favorite city. And I live currently part of the year in Oakland, California, and the other part of the year here. And particularly since I've gotten, since I've been living in California, my love of Chicago has actually increased. And I wanted to tell the story of the the population, the people that make up Chicago, and the reasons why I think Chicago is such a great, vibrant city. And part of that, I think, really is due to the Great Migration. And so the Great Migration started in 1915, and many, about six million African Americans left the South, came to the North, to many different northern cities, including Chicago, to make a different life for themselves. And that's why I wanted to to tell the story. My My family was part of this migration. And the film is done with uh, Carlos Ortiz, who unfortunately could not be here today just because we're taping this at a, at a very strange time. But you made the choice. This is a short film, A Thousand Midnights. It's 12 minutes in black and white. Talk about a little bit what the choices that you made to do, first of all, a short film. And then why in, why in black and white and not in color? Sure. Uh, so Carlos Javier Ortiz is my uh, collaborator and also my husband. We work together quite a bit on um, his our creative work. Um, the reason that we decided to do the film in black and white is really, in many ways, just for purely for aesthetic reasons. Uh, that's sort of the way he sees the world, and he shot all of this. And so uh, he really works a lot with tonality and sort of gray, black and white tones, and that's the way he wanted to to, to film this. And there's definitely a uh, one of the reasons he started using black and white was because he's done about... 10 years of documentary photo work documenting the victims of gun violence in Chicago. And many of those crime scenes are bloody and quite um, difficult. And so often being able to see those scenes in black and white renders them a little bit easier on the eye than if they were in color, frankly. Well, I mean, that brings up something. I, I want to don't want to skip over some of this stuff, but one of the most powerful moments in A Thousand Midnights was a scene with a young uh, man uh, at a crime scene crying and another young boy come up saying this is going to be on the news tonight. That to me was a very moving touch point that speaks a lot to what's going on in Chicago right now. I, I'm assuming that was a very intentional uh, move for you guys. Absolutely. So A Thousand Midnights follows as part of a um, hopefully a, a trilogy of short films that we are doing. The first short film is called We All We Got and it chronicles 
many of the families who've lost their children here in Chicago. And Carlos, as I mentioned, for the last 10 years has actually listened to a police scanner and gone out um, at all hours of the day and night to photograph and film the immediate after effects of of what happens when families learn that their loved ones have been murdered or injured. Um, And then he would follow them for many years to actually get to know not just what happens the day of when it's sensational and when the newspaper is still there, but what happens after everyone leaves and you have to go back to your regular life uh, and the cameras are, are long gone. The Great Migration is is something that uh, writer and, and famous Chicago author uh, Tim Novak said is his great regret for not covering. Mm. He talked about the fact that you know on a daily basis when he was covering whatever story it was that was of the moment, he was he was going into uh, grab lunch at the same place and he was seeing people in droves get off buses and come to Chicago, and the regret was that he never thought for a second to think about where where they were coming from. Uh, it's a story that a lot of Chicagoans don't even know much about, even though our own county president, President Strozier, was part of that migration. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about you know th- this story and what you've learned in, in correlation with the, the festival. Sure. So one of the things that struck me, I think, about my own uh, personal history and experience with the Great Migration was that my mom would often talk about what her life was like in the South and what her life was like, why they decided to leave, and in some respects how... Um, you know, she the day after she graduated from high school, they got on, she got on a bus and they left everything behind and they just came to Chicago. And I, it never occurred to me because I didn't learn very much about that in school that she was actually part of a much bigger story and that the Great Migration, some historians and other scholars feel is the greatest, the biggest internal migration in U.S. history. And yet we don't learn very much about it in schools necessarily and we don't I think, fully appreciate the ways in which it remade American cities uh, so that Chicago really would not be Chicago without that influx of people coming from the South, bringing um, all of the the sort of histories and beauty and strife that people brought with them from the South to to plant roots here in Chicago. And is that, you know, your background, you're an assistant professor at, at Berkeley School of Welfare, but is that why you got into studying inequality and, and racial disparity and, uh, you know, macrostructural institutional forces um, because of your mother's experience, because of your family's experience? Sure. I really saw a lot of things in my own family that um, made me question and made me very curious about why things were the way they are, right? So I started to sort of question, why is it that it seems so much of, you know, so many people in my mom's family and our extended family um, suffered so much from health conditions that other people don't? And it, my my particular story is I have a very kind of, uh, both sides of my family are um, in some ways migrants or immigrants, but my father's family are um, Russian Jewish immigrants from uh, what is now Belarusia. Um, and so looking at sort of the comparison, the, these two different stories and the very different trajectories that my father's family had versus my mother's family made me curious about why I saw so many health, you know, poor health conditions among my mother's family that I didn't necessarily see in my father's family. We're talking with Tina Sachs, who is the producer and writer of A Thousand Midnights. Can you tell us a little bit about, for people who don't really know much about the Great Migration, what were the conditions that your mother and her family were, were fleeing? So my my mother and many other people like her really lived in in 
deep, deep poverty, uh, the kind of poverty I think that we might be somewhat familiar with thinking about rural poverty in general. Uh, but she didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, she really never had enough food to eat. She attended segregated schools. Um, she did not have very much access to education in general. She talked a lot about what it was like to go to school uh, it, to have textbooks in which there were other people, they were, they were 10 or 15 years old, and they had other people's doodles written in the margin, and the most important lessons were torn out. And so she really didn't have access to the kind of education that she uh, would have had if she were living in a different kind of society, frankly. Um, and there was also, so there was deep poverty, but the threat of violence was also very common. Uh, and so people living in the South were concerned about just their, their material well-being, but also their safety, just given the kind of racial dynamics that were at play at that time. I don't want to downplay that, but it sounds like you're speaking about modern Chicago for, for many African-Americans. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the tie-ins in the film, that we, we really tried to think about the conditions that that encouraged or forced, depending on how you think about it, people to leave the South looking for a better life in the North, um, and then arriving here and still finding um, uh, deep poverty and also quite a bit of violence. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to make the connection to the current conditions of violence that people are living through here in Chicago as well. And of course, African Americans, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the, the figure is something like 300,000 African Americans have left Chicago in the last decade, I believe we're the only city that has, that has lost population in general, but it is mainly African-American families that are leaving. That is true. I think it may not be 300, but perhaps in the last decade it's all, it is that many. It's quite, it's a significant number, and I think that the violence is certainly one of the factors that's pushing people out. Bad at Sports spoke with Sergio Mims about the Black Harvest Film Festival this coming August. The festival, now in its 23rd year, showcases the worldwide black experience. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And our guest here is Sergio Mims. That's right, me, w folks. Welcome. Thanks, thanks a lot. And so when you build that kind of rapport with filmmakers, and when they see the kind of turnout that they get and the response from the audience, how can they turn us down when well, they have a say, new project? All of, all of the films must be this easy to get, right? No. <laughs> No, that's not true. <laughs> there are some tough ones. There are films we didn't get. Really? You know, sure. You know, I always tend to think of those movies, you know. Damn, the one that got away. Uh, I won't be as crass as to tell you which ones they were. Oh, but you can but already tell that we. this is the type of information no, we love. I don't <laughs> want to do that because I don't want to burn any bridges. <laughs> Fair. But, yes. Yeah, I mean, yes, some are very easy to get. Some say yes, some you got to do a little negotiating. And some you really got to work at. And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. Or sometimes they they, they renege. They yeah. agree. And then all of a sudden, for some reason or another, they pull it out. So this kind of, you know, obviously. And that happens for every festival. Of course. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cutthroat scene out there for an independent film as well as for uh, for the festivals that they, that yeah. they go into. Uh, this might be a good way to, you know, obviously some of your draw comes from the reputation that Black Harvest has built over the past 23 years. Yeah. Um, could we maybe actually go back in time a little bit and maybe get a little bit of the history of Black Harvest, how it was founded, and like how it got to this point now? Yeah, how long have you been at Gene Siskel? Since the beginning. 
Man, I'm the one who had no sense. <laughs> of, well, okay, I may have to start as early as the 1980s because there was an earlier black film festival called Blacklight, which I co-founded with, um, and this was very independent, uh, with Floyd Webb, Terry Glover, and me. And uh, that started in, oh gosh, I think 81, 82, and continued until 80, I want to say 88. Now, I, I wasn't there all those years. I had left somewhere in the middle. But I, I, I do remember the year I left uh, was my final year was re-premiered Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It. Dang. And I remember at the time thinking, that Spike guy, okay, he's kind of cute. It's a nice movie. <laughs> I don't know where he's going to go. He's, yeah. he's a nice guy. Who knows you know, if he'll make it knows? anywhere? Yeah, who, I don't know where he's going to wind up. <laughs> Maybe do TV commercials. I don't know. So, um... Years go by, and then 23 years ago, Barbara Shearis, who is the um, um, main programmer and director, executive director of, of, of the Gene Sisko Films, uh, of the Cisco, that was, back then it was just called the Art Institute Film Center. It wasn't right. even Sisko yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she came up with the idea to st- sort of start over a black film festival again. And uh, she brought me in and Terry Glover, who has unfortunately has passed away now five years ago, and me and a bunch of others. And uh, this is back when the film center used to be in their original location, which was back on Columbus Drive and Jackson, behind. Yeah, in the old art, the SAIC oh, yeah, building. Where the, right. yeah. They had that big the studio building is now. Yeah. Right. And um, so, you know, it just started on very small. And showed a couple movies, and it lasted, I don't know, a week and a half? I'm not sure. And I guess we just saw potential in it, and it just kept going and going. So that was in 94. Yeah, 94. My God, time flies, really. Yeah. And uh, it just kept going and going, and others came and went and came and left, and I stayed. Cause and I guess, you're still here. Because I had nothing better to do. And I guess because <laughs> I thought it, it was a good idea. Let me stick with it. And uh, and then eventually when they move over to the new space, their space now on State Street, right? Uh, renamed Gene Sisko Film Center. We just kept going, and then it takes a while, you know, yeah, for a film to build those relationships, to build, to build relationships the trust, and to get audiences, you know, excited about it and all that sort of stuff. And now it's you know, it when August comes, I mean, literally, people come up to me on the street, literally. And say, hey, how's Black Harvest doing? What are you going to have a Black Harvest this year? August comes, people know Black Harvest, you know. And as I said before, now we have a national or international reputation. I, you know, I tried to think how many films we have shown over the 23 years. I couldn't begin to guess. Right. Um, how many filmmakers have come over the years? I couldn't begin to guess. But the fact that we're showing, I think, more films this year than ever before the fact that last year, two years ago, we completely blew away every audience attendance record. Last year, we blew away that. This year, hopefully we could equal that or even top that. And all these filmmakers are coming. As I said, I saw the list Friday. No, I'm sorry, yesterday. And my mouth dropped open. I said, all these people are coming? My God. You know. So, I- you know, it's... Um, I think we're pretty well established, and um, God knows how far this, how far I guess it can continue to who knows when. 
So as a man, will that, I be here? I don't know. <laughs> what, as a person who started uh, two film festivals, can you like give us a little bit of your origin story? Like, what brought you to cinema in the first place? Like, what is it about well, cinema you see, that you feel? As, um, well, I'm of the generation. Um, uh, well, I, I joke with younger friends of mine, you know, because I'm like, I've always loved movies. Always, always loved movies. My father, see, now here's a little secret. My father was a policeman, right? Which meant in Chicago, you could see movies for free. Oh. What? Yeah. I'm sorry, that's, this is news to me. Well, yeah, you flash your badge and they'll let you in. Oh, cool, yeah. sounds good. So my father would take me out all the time to see movies because he loved war movies and westerns. And that's what I grew up on. War movie, westerns, and James Bond movies. <laughs> and black exploitation films. Uh, so when Star Wars came out, I was like, oh, what's the deal? It's not like, you know, <laughs> you know what? Uh, it's like the Flash Gordon series that you see on TV. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, uh, which is why Dunkirk excites me, you know. Right. Um, so, um, but I always loved movies. And then eventually, I actually worked in the film business. I was assistant director for like 10 years in Chicago and L.A., uh, I worked in some movies, some TV shows, and it took me 10 years to realize I wasn't good at a job. <laughs> and then I left that. I taught for several years at Columbia College and also for a while briefly at Art School at Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, I wrote screenplays. Um, and then uh, I created this website about seven years ago. Uh, Shadow and Shadow and Act. Act. Which we recently sold. Well, and and believe me, I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> it wasn't one of those big things, you know. I read those things and go like, damn, how did that happen? We didn't get anything like that. But movies have always been my life. So, And people always always talk about how much I know about movies and the background of movies. And I've seen everything, which is almost true. Except and, for except the, the, Let the, It Fall. I haven't seen <laughs> Which you're looking forward to and, seeing. And I'm proud to see I haven't seen Hostel 2. Okay. Huh. So, um, so uh, yeah, that, that's just how it, just, it was a natural thing. I think you are actually the definition of influencer. Yeah, it was a natural thing. And there was a period of time in the late 70s when I, well, really, I started to meet a lot of black filmmakers. Uh, in Los Angeles, people today uh, who are part of the L.A. Rebellion, people like Julie Dash and Charles Burnett, who are long before Spike Lee or any of these other filmmakers, they were making Any of these movies. cute young filmmakers like Spike Lee. Yeah, right. Um, and then if I joke, which is really true, I, I am black cinema. I, I have met or worked with or know practically most black filmmakers working today. At one time or another? Well, and if you want to be a black filmmaker... you, know, you got to come to Black Harvest. You, yeah. Pay respect. Fine, Sergio. And those I don't know, I will meet them after, you yeah. know, after Black Harvest. <laughs> On this month's Divisive show, hosts Craig Harshaw and Leah Gibson discuss Western painting and artwork. Here, they talk about representations of the baby Jesus in canonical works. Divisive airs every third Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m. Now, the other two paintings we looked at in this gallery are radically different. Uh, Di Cosimos um, from 1506 um, includes St. Um, uh, Cecilia, 
Now, Cecilia is a fascinating figure, especially as she figures in this painting. Um, in some ways, she figures here in the same way that St. Luke does in the painting by Di Carpi, since Cecilia is the patron state of music, and thus is an endorsement of the theological centrality of the arts. Artists like to do this. They like to find the, the saints that are really into the arts, and then they put them in there, because it's a way of like uh, offending off those members of the church that actually, um, uh, and Protestants. So Luther, for example, was like, why do you need all these paintings? Right. So this is a way of saying, no, no, the arts are really important. Look, baby Jesus really liked them. Um, however, there's a rather disconcerting aspect to this painting, uh, which art historians believe um, must have been painted to adorn a bedroom chamber. OK, so this painting is a round painting. And so art historians believe that this was in somebody's bedroom chamber. And paintings like this were were regularly painted um, as celebrations of the birth of a child. Um, uh, Di Cosimo was one of the most outrageously provocative artists working in Renaissance Florence, and I think you can see that here. Uh, he creates an incredibly sensual image um, in a place that you probably wouldn't think um, that includes what is, to my mind, a radically sex-positive baby Jesus, or body positive at least. Um, in fact, one is hard put to not focus on the extremely revealed genitals of baby Christ, right? Looked at in juxtaposition with the more orthodox Carigio painting, the contrast is striking. In both paintings, the Christ child is naked, but Carigio manages to have the infant's foot <laughs> block our view of the genitalia, um, conveniently. Um, uh, Di Cosmino goes in an entirely different direction, literally having the infant turn out in an awkward position and spread his legs so that his penis is actually shockingly central to the composition. Add to this that the Christ child is ravenously devouring a plum that is being fed to him by an older, mesmerized John the Baptist as the Virgin Mary looks down in a kind of ecstatic contemplation. At the other side of the composition sits St. Cecilia reading a book that has musical notations in it, and then there are two mysterious figures in the painting that are either wingless angels or simply young girls. One girl watches enraptured as the Christ child eats the plum, whilst the other cocks her head and looks down with deep concentration at Cecilia's book. Well, I'd also add that uh, the Virgin Mary is actually holding the Christ child's foot almost to pull it back yes. so that we can see all of the glory of the Christ child. Um, and I think we should, if we're going to compare these two, particularly looking at um, baby Christ in each of these, um, and then we'll have the third comparison mm -hmm. with uh, John the Baptist, is to think about why we're looking at these two uh, figures together, the Christ child and John the Baptist. Yeah. Um, and to think about also who John the Baptist is in each of these paintings and also in the biblical uh, accounts of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist uh, is an important figure in Christianity because of his connection to Christ. Um, uh, John is also the cousin of Jesus. He is described uh, as a devout um, preacher traveling with the message of uh, repentance. And in Matthew and Acts, uh, there are accounts of Jesus that 
that Jesus was baptized by John or uh, followed the baptism of John. So there's actually in Matthew, John is recorded saying that he should be baptized by Jesus instead of the other way around. So what this painting does of uh, Di Cosimo is, is doing is really interesting because John the Baptist is feeding baby yeah. Jesus, whereas in the Correggio painting, we see Christ, the Christ child, as the one who is blessing uh, John the Baptist. Yes, yes. Um, I also want to say something about Cecilia. Um, some knowledge of the story of Cecilia's martyrdom, I think, really helps us to understand the perversity of this painting. So if you don't know, um, Cecilia was a young Roman girl of noble birth um, who had converted to Christianity. So she was a real person. Uh, historians agree that she she did. There was a person called Cecilia who was killed for being a Christian. The myth that's come up around her is a little, uh, um, most historians uh, don't agree with it. But in church um, history, um, Cecilia um, was... She converted to Christianity, um, but she was married off by her parents to a Roman pagan named Valerian. Uh, during her forced marriage um, ceremony, she sat apart and she sang within her head and her heart songs of devotion to Jesus Christ. When Valerian attempted to have sex with his bride that evening in the honeymoon suite, Cecilia explained to him that she had taken a vow of virginity. And that if he penetrated her, an angel of the Lord would appear and torture her. So Valerian was a rather nice guy. And, but he was still sort of questioning all this. Like maybe she's just not that into me. Um, and so she asks Celia uh, why he could not see the angel of the Lord. Um, that she alleged was present right there in the bedroom chamber right above them. Um, and Cecilia explained that if he truly wished to see the angel, he must go out and find Pope Urban, who was in hiding, because again, Christianity is suppressed under the Roman Empire, and be baptized as a Christian. So she also told him that if he respected her vow of chastity, she promised to fall in love with him. But it would be a platonic love, right? So Valerian uh, went out. He went, you know, out uh, uh, um, into the highway, and um, he eventually found Pope Urban, and he was baptized. And when he returned to Cecilia, lo and behold, he saw an angel above her head, and the angel came with garlands of lilies and roses and wrapped them all around Cecilia. So as I said, people agree that there was a couple named Valerian and Cecilia that were executed either by Emperor Severus in 230 AD or while in exile in Sicily by Emperor uh, Marcus Aurelius in uh, 180 AD. Um, the, the, now, the legend in Catholic Church history, though, gets a little weirder. The legend is that they killed um, Valerian and then they came to kill Cecilia. And they were going to cut her head off with a sword. And the first time they tried to do that, the sword got caught like halfway through her neck. And so then they couldn't get it out. So she's just in there with the thing and she's still alive. And then they finally get it out. And then they go to whack her again with it and it gets caught again. And it takes even longer to get it out. And then they go to whack her with it again and it gets caught again. 
And that time it takes even longer. And when they finally get it out, I don't know if this was a rule like three strikes and the executioner out or something like that. But they're like, okay, we're we're not going to. We're just going to. She's bleeding real bad. She'll probably bleed out. She lived for three days. And three is really important in Christianity, right? There's all kinds of things. St. Matthew was blind for three days, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So she lives for three days. And during those three days, as she's bleeding and, and in some of the stories she writes in her blood what she wants to have done like her testaments and she says I'd like you to turn my house into a church Um, and so of course she does all of these wonderful things Um, so what's interesting to me about all of that is here is a saint known for her commitment to her own virginity right that's in this very sensual painting This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump emasculates and humiliates Jeff Sessions, Spicy quits, the mooch threatens to fire everyone, the GOP wobbles to the finish on healthcare, and a hot mic reveals what senators really think. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 182, July 20th. Trump told the New York Times he never would have hired Jeff Sessions had he known Sessions would recuse himself from the Russia investigation. Sessions should never have recused himself, Trump said, and if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he took the job, and I would have picked somebody else. Trump called the decision very unfair to the president. How do you take a job and then recuse yourself? Asked if Robert Mueller's investigation would cross a line if it started to look at the Trump family finances beyond Russia, Trump said, quote, I would say yes, but declined to say what you would do about it. I think that's a violation. Look, this is about Russia. Sessions plans to stay in his role despite Trump's comments and would continue to do so as long as that is appropriate. And John McCain has been diagnosed with brain cancer and had an aggressive tumor removed last week. The Mayo Clinic Hospital said tests revealed a primary brain tumor that is associated with the same kind of tumor Ted Kennedy died of in 2009. The survival rate for the kind of tumor McCain has is approximately 14 months. And Trump's commission investigating voter fraud held its first meeting yesterday amid a swirl of acrimony. Critics have charged the panel as looking to suppress voting. Trump claims baselessly that he would have won the popular vote if not for millions of illegal votes. In bizarre coda, Chris Kobach, the Kansas Republican who was the panel's vice chairman, was asked if he believed Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three to five million votes. Kobach replied, quote, we will probably never know the answer to that question. And Trump is threatening to gut the Obamacare markets, repeatedly telling aides and advisors he wants to end the subsidy payments. 
Trump has the discretion to decide unilaterally whether the payments continue while a lawsuit House Republicans won in 2014 is being appealed. In related news, the CBO estimated that the Senate repeal-only bill would leave 32 million people uninsured and would double premiums over a decade. And the Supreme Court temporarily allowed the Trump administration to enforce restrictions on the nation's refugee program, but it let stand a court order from Hawaii that grandparents and other relatives who want to travel to the United States to visit family must be admitted while that case proceeds on appeal. And Trump has decided to end the CIA's covert program to arm and train moderate Syrian rebels battling the government of Bashar al-Assad, a move long sought by Russia. The program was a central plank of a policy begun by the Obama administration to put pressure on Assad to step aside, but even his backers questions its efficacy. And the military is paying $130,000 a month to lease space in Trump Tower for offices that support the White House, despite Trump not spending a night there since becoming president. The military's lease in Trump Tower is far above market rate for similarly sized apartments in the luxury high-rise market, making it one of the most expensive residential rentals in Manhattan. Day 183, July 21st. Sean Spicer resigned today, telling Trump he vehemently disagreed with the appointment of New York financier Anthony Scaramucci to be the new communications director. Trump asked that Spicer stay on, but he told Trump that he believed the appointment was a major mistake. Scaramucci founded the global investment firm Skybridge Capital and is a Fox News Channel contributor. And Reuters reports that the Russian lawyer who met with Donald Trump Jr. after his father won the Republican nomination counted Russia's FSB security service among her clients for years. Court documents show that the lawyer, Natalia Venostachka, successfully represented the FSB's interest in a legal wrangle over the ownership of an upscale property in northwest Moscow between 2005 and 2013. And Trump called Republican senators to a White House launch and urged them to continue to work on a health care bill that is effectively dead. Trump said they should cancel recess and stay and work through August on the bill. The reception of Trump was cool, with many senators privately griping that Trump had done little to help the bill. And Robert Mueller has expanded his probe to include Trump's business transactions, ignoring Trump's warning not to dig into matters beyond Russia. Investigators are looking at Russian purchases of apartments in Trump buildings, Trump's involvement in a Soho development with Russian associates, the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow, and Trump's sale of a Florida mansion to a Russian oligarch in 2008. In related news, Paul Manafort was in debt to pro-Russia interests when he joined Trump's campaign in March 2016. Shell companies linked to Manafort's businesses in Ukraine owed as much as $17 million. Congress advanced sweeping sanctions legislation to punish Russia for its election meddling and aggression toward its neighbors, sharply limiting Trump's ability to suspend or terminate the sanctions. That is a remarkable rebuke to the Trump administration, which has indicated it will reluctantly sign the measure. And the Trump administration said it would bar Americans from traveling to North Korea a month after the death of Otto Warmbier, the college student from Ohio who was arrested while trying to leave the country and returned to his parents more than a year later in a coma. The announcement came only hours after Mike Pompeo, the director of the CIA, strongly hinted that the USA was considering seeking regime change in North Korea. Day 184, July 22nd. Trump's lawyers are exploring ways to stymie Robert Mueller's Russia investigation, according to a report in the New York Times. They're looking for conflicts of interest they could use to discredit the investigation or force members of the team to recuse themselves and possibly build a case to fire Mueller. And Trump's lawyers are discussing his authority to grant pardons to aides, family members, and himself in connection with the Russia probe. No president has ever pardoned himself, and there is no precedent, which leaves the question open if a president can use this constitutional power to pardon themselves. Trump later asserted the complete power to pardon relatives, aides, and possibly even himself. Many constitutional scholars say this is false. 
and the Kushners filed new financial disclosure forms indicating they could be both worth more than $762 million. Kushner inadvertently omitted 77 items. Ivanka Trump revealed she has earned more than $5 million from outside interests since taking her role in the White House. And the Senate parliamentarian has ruled that several provisions in the GOP health care bill do not comply with budget rules on reconciliation. <clears throat> the violations of the Byrd rule raised the threshold for certain provisions to 60 votes, not the simple majority the Republicans are hoping to use to repeal Obamacare. Mitch McConnell says he may ditch precedent and ram the vote through anyway. And Anthony Scaramucci praised conservative news site Breitbart News, saying, quote, one of the things Breitbart has done is that you've captured the spirit of what's actually going on in the country. Scaramucci told editor Matt Boyle during an interview on Breitbart News Sunday. Scaramucci says he's aiming to get Trump's unfiltered message through to his supporters via the president's Twitter feed. Day 185, July 23rd. The Trump team used Obamacare money to run ads that undermine the health care law. The administration requested $574 million from the Department of Health and Human Services Consumer Information and Outreach Budget, which is supposed to be used for advertising the ACA and encouraging enrollment. Instead, the Trump team bought social media ads and produced more than 130 videos designed to damage public opinion of Obamacare. And Trump has reshuffled his legal team with Mark Kasowitz stepping aside as the role requires Washington-centric expertise. The spokesman for Trump's legal team also resigned two months after starting. Mark Corrales said the dynamics were untenable and there was, quote, too much fighting all the time. Both men were also reportedly concerned about whether or not they were being told the truth. And banking regulators are reviewing hundreds of millions of dollars in loans made to Trump's businesses through Deutsche Bank's private wealth management union, which caters to an ultra-lich clientele. Deutsche Bank has been in contact with federal investigators about the Trump accounts. Day 186, July 24th. Trump pressured Republican senators to get on board and do the right thing and repeal Obamacare, saying, quote, any senator who votes against starting debate is telling America that you are fine with the Obamacare nightmare. Earlier, he threatened Republicans that the repercussions will be far greater than they expect and complaining that Republicans are doing, quote, very little to protect their president. And Jared Kushner told a Senate panel that neither he nor any member of the Trump campaign team colluded with Russian officials over the U.S. election. He said he had no improper contacts and had not relied on Russian funds to finance his business activities. The Senate, along with the House and special counsel, are, of course, investigating Russian interference in the election. And Trump called Jeff Sessions beleaguered today in a tweet, claiming, quote, so many people were asking why Sessions was not looking into Clinton and her deleted emails, despite Trump telling the Justice Department they should not investigate Clinton after he won the election. Trump has floated the possibility of bringing in Rudolph Giuliani to head the Justice Department. And Rex Tillerson has hinted that he could resign. Tillerson has expressed growing frustration with the Trump administration and sees Trump's public attacks on Sessions as unprofessional. Day 187, July 25th. Republicans secured the 51 votes needed to advance their health care bill after Pence cast the tie-breaking vote. The Senate will now begin debating, amending, and ultimately voting in the coming days on the future of Obamacare. Several Republican holdouts announced their support, including Rand Paul and Shelley Morcapito. Senators Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski both voted against the motion to proceed. Ironically, John McCain, who was being treated for brain cancer, cast a decisive vote to begin the process of taking health care away from poor and sick people. And Kellyanne Conway claimed the media doesn't offer complete coverage of the Trump administration and that it's incredibly unfair and systematically against this president. Trump has claimed that millions have voted illegally and accused Obama of wiretapping him despite having no proof of it happening. Conway said Trump doesn't think he's lying about those issues. And to slow White House leaks, new communications head Anthony Scaramucci plans to fire everybody. If you're going to keep leaking, I'm going to fire everybody. He called leaking information un-American, unprofessional, and harmful. 
and North Korea will be able to field a reliable, nuclear-capable ICBM as early as next year. That dramatically shrinks the timeline for when Pyongyang could strike North American cities with atomic weapons. The finding increases the pressure on the U.S. and Asia to halt North Korea's progress. Day 188, July 26. The Senate voted down Republicans' comprehensive plan to replace Obamacare. The measure fell far short of the votes needed at 43 to 57. The fact that the plan came up well short of even 50 votes is an ominous sign for Republican leaders. The debate continues today. And Trump said today he was banning transgender service people from the armed forces. That announcement stunned the Pentagon, which was further left in a lurch by his tweets, the first of which seemed to indicate Trump was calling for a military strike. The tweet raised fears that the USA was about to attack North Korea. People at the Pentagon said they were left in suspense for nine minutes, the time between the first and second tweet. And the Justice Department escalated its promised crackdown on so-called sanctuary cities, saying it will no longer award grant money to cities unless they give immigration authorities access to jails and provide advance notice on when someone in the country illegally is about to be released. The new conditions say officials must let the Department of Homeland Security have access to local jails in order to meet with immigrants. And parents are angry after Trump delivered a politicized speech to tens of thousands of Boy Scouts. Over 35 minutes, Trump threatened to fire one of his cabinet members, attacked Obama, attacked Hillary Clinton, marveled at the size of the crowd, warned the boys about fake media, mocked the polls, and said more people would say, Merry Christmas. The Boy Scouts of America said it was, quote, wholly nonpartisan and does not promote one position, product, services, political candidate, or philosophy. And the leading psychiatric group has told its members they can comment on Trump's mental health, a break from years of avoiding public commentary on public figures. Trump also continued his withering public attacks on his own attorney general, saying Sessions was, quote, very weak on investigating Clinton's alleged crimes and on intelligence leaks. Replacing Sessions is viewed by some Trump associates as potentially being part of a strategy to fire special counsel Robert Mueller and end his investigation of whether the Trump campaign coordinated with the Kremlin. And Susan Collins and Jack Reed were caught on a hot mic discussing the president's sanity. Said Reed, I think he's crazy. Collins said, I'm worried. Collins later apologized. Reed refused to. And 538 says only 38% of Americans now approve of Trump, a new low for the Metapol. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free Bridgeport has welcomed a series of local musicians into the station. This week, Ohm came into Studio B and performed a head-turning set. Sia Cunningham and Macy Stewart also spoke about growing up in musical families and how important touring is for young bands. This excerpt contains a live version of their song, Fingerprints. Welcome to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. This is John Daly. We have a live version of Radio Free Bridgeport. We are here with producer Jamie Trecker, and we have some special guests in the studio ready to play for you. But we have the members of Ohm uh, in here today. Ohm is a very uh, popular local band. They're going to be here playing a few songs, talking about uh, what they do. I'd like to introduce Seema Cunningham. Hi. Macy Stewart. Hey. And Matt, the new drummer. Who doesn't have a microphone? (laughs) (laughs) So let's start off, guys. Tell us a little bit about what you guys do. And, you know, you guys have become very popular in the city. People know your names. But tell our listeners who are not sitting in the studio looking at you guys. How'd you guys get started? And what do you guys exactly do? Um, Well, we are a three-piece band now. Um, We we started a few years ago um, because me and Seema wanted to be able to play guitars together and sing together. Um, we had been doing that for a while, but um, we we wanted a way to kind of improvise on the guitar mm-hmm. while also... Yeah, and, and we'd known each other for a while. We, we actually went to the same high school, um, not far from here. We went to Whitney Young High School, and 
uh, Matt, actually, also our drummer, is from the city. And um, so we knew each other in high school, too. And uh, and we'd all been playing in different projects over the years. Macy had been playing with my brother for years in a couple different bands, Marrow. And, um, and, but me and Macy had been singing together a lot in different things. We'd been harmonizing together. You know, we were kind of like a, a go-to, like, oh, we need some, some harmony singers. And me and Macy <laughs> love singing harmony yeah. together. Um, we're pretty, we're nerds about it. And we have our <laughs> little, like, our sign language that we use to, <laughs> to, 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 to move around harmonies and move around songs, which is really fun. And, but yeah, we just decided that we wanted to start a project and then project turned into band, band tr duo turned into trio. And here we are, we've just finished recording our second record, so. And you guys, just to back up, as I recall, you guys didn't start out as guitarists. You were in demand as, as multi-instrumentalists, both of you played keyboards, as I recall, and yeah, you guys yeah. have done backup and, and session work for a lot of people in the city. Because mm -hmm. you, you've appeared, I mean, I, I'm losing count of how many albums you've actually <laughs> appeared on. Yeah, yeah, we've we've recorded with a lot of people over the years. I mean, we, you know, just from being in Chicago, we've just known people for a long time. Mm -hmm. And me and Macy have recorded with all the social experiment guys for, you know, those are old buddies and yeah, from high school, you know, and and um, and uh, and then I I've known Jeff Tweedy and kind of his whole world of people for a long time. And so me and my brother sang on. Um, some stuff that he's produced and um, and then now you know now our friends are also in bands that are recording a lot and yeah, so I've done a lot of like string recording for people around the city um, but yeah yeah Macy's like a, a we we were both classically trained in piano um, Macy to a much higher degree than <laughs> I um, so she does a lot of string arrangements and then also was a keyboard multi multi keyboard synth nerd mm -hmm. <laughs> yes I am a nerd um, so yeah, she, yeah, since. Well, one of the things I wanted to get to, and I know John's got a thousand questions for you guys as well, but you, you guys do so much with the Chicago scene. It's something we talk about quite a lot on the show of late. Chicago has seemed to have a booming music scene. It, it, it's centered around improvisational music and jazz at the moment. Um, but I, I wanted you, if you guys could just speak briefly to whether you share kind of our idea that there's this feeling of something kind of getting rolling in the city all of a sudden absolutely I mean the last the last like five years it's felt like there's such a rich creative scene here that's just all bubbling to the surface it's always been there but now it's kind of getting starting to get the recognition that it rightfully deserves I mean there's we have every kind of music here and everyone is so good and everyone's pretty humble here too so it's just like a really it's a really great music scene to be a part of and it's now I think, coming to a head. Yeah. I think it was cool for me, too, because about five years ago, I moved back to Chicago from New York, where I went to college, and kind of re-emerging into this scene um, and re, you know, meeting it and meeting kind of a generation of musicians that were a generation or even two generations older than us. Mm -hmm. And then there was this, this, you know, me and Macy are kind of like a micro generation apart. She's 24 and I'm 27. So there's kind of like a little bit of a, so it was interesting for me to meet that and meet all the kids that were like young high school kids when I graduated and left Chicago who had been just really, really deep into, you know, first of all, there, there was this like deep culture of like everyone getting really good at their instruments <laughs> and being really, really deeply into music. Like, you know, the whole, I feel like, um, and I, I know that this happened before, but kind of 
in in high school, I feel like there started to be this thing where people were trading music intensely, probably, you know, in some somewhat illegal fashion, like lots of hard drive, <laughs> lots of hard drive sharing and being like, oh, man, I got the full Miles Davis collection on my hard drive. You want yeah. it? You know, and like and that was really cool. And so coming back to that, the golden age of LimeWire. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so pay, pay for your music, people. It's important. <laughs> I think Jamie's, you know, right. We, we've talked to um, people in almost every industry, and I think what we're mo- most interested in is what, why people are creating here, what keeps them here, um, and what is unique about Chicago. But more importantly, we also try to think about what, what we can use, um, and what are maybe some tools that, uh, in your case, musicians might need in Chicago for, for better support. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, whenever people ask me about, like, like sometimes – young musicians who are arriving are like, hey, I'm trying to get into this. Can I sit down with you and ask you about like your scene or like what's what's going on? I'm trying to trying to get into that. I tell them like when I first moved back to Chicago, I was going to music every single night. Mm -hmm. I can't quite keep that up anymore because I need to sleep and write music. And (laughs) if I go out every night, that won't happen. (laughs) But when I first got back here, like every free night at the bottle, I was going to, um, you know, Constellation, The Brain, Hideout, um, and all the small clubs in between. You know, I was going to Township and Shubas, and I was just trying to be out as at as many shows as possible because in Chicago, not only do we have great musicians, there's really great clubs here. There's great venues. There's great um, presenters. And there's so many different kinds of music. Really, it's, like, impossible to find yourself with, like, I, I, th- I think, like, to say, oh, there's no good music happening in Chicago tonight. Or, or not even just music, but performance, art, something That's happening. Not in, thing. It's not a thing here. <laughs> there's always something happening on any every single night of the week, Salonathon at Beauty Bar, you know, like that's another place to meet maybe not necessarily musicians, but performers and creative people. Um, there's house shows. So Yeah. Yeah, I think that. I think it's really important for young musicians and new new musicians to the scene to just be a part of the hang. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that I've learned in the last few years is like you know, that's that's how you meet people. That's how you meet other musicians. And that's how you become friends with people and become a part of a scene is just making sure you're hanging out at at clubs, hanging mm-hmm. out after shows, going to see everyone play, because the, the culture in Chicago is very much a sharing culture. I mean, everyone is is playing on each other's records. Everyone is sharing each other's music. So it's really important to be a part of that. Well, do you guys want to play us a, a sample off the new album? Sure. Should we play Fingerprints? Yeah, let's do it. When the lights came into focus They had a thousand fingerprints Perfectly symmetrical Floating in your head You sat on a piano But you weren't sure just how You're sick from all the yesterdays But they're dying now Inside your life Body You're alive Body Ah, 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 ah,
was shaking I, 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 I looking at the beat I, 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 I thought for sure she was lost But she flew high above the waterfall Started dripping out your nose. There's no room for nostalgia I'm understanding The idea You're Produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.